0: CHAPTER TWO OF THE GAMBLER by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the Public Domain. Recording by Simon Evers. CHAPTER TWO To English ears the reply was curious. Yet with all its vagueness, all its racial inclination towards high colour, it held the germ of truth that frequently lies in such utterances. With native acuteness it threw out a suggestion without betraying a confidence. An instant after it was spoken there was a final flourish of the whip, a scrape of wheels on the wet gravel, a straining and creaking of damp leather, and the trap drew up before the big white house. Milbank caught a fleeting suggestion of a shabby door with pillars on which rested a square balcony of rusty iron, a number of unlighted windows, a general air of grandeur and decay curiously blended. Then the hall door opened, and a voice, whose first note roused a hundred memories, rolled out across the darkness. "'Is that you, James?' "'Come in! "'Come in!' "'Keep the mare in hand, Burke. Steady now, James. "'Let me hold the rug and give you a hand down. "'She's a little rogue and might be making a bolt for her stable. "'Well, you're as welcome as the flowers in May. "'Come in! "'Come in!' It was over in a flash, the arrival, the tempestuous greeting, the hard grip of Ashlyn's hand, and the two men were facing each other in the candlelit hall. "'Well, you're welcome, James,' Ashton repeated. "'You're welcome. Let me have a look at you. "'I declare it's younger you are.' He laid his hand heavily on the other's shoulder, and uttered this obvious untruth with all the warmth and conviction that Irish imagination and Irish hospitality could suggest. "'But you are perished after the long drive, Burke,' he called through the open door. "'Burke, when you're done with the mare, come round and carry up Mr Bilbank's luggage. "'Now, James.' He wheeled round again, catching up a silver candlestick from the hall table. "'Now, if you come upstairs, I'll show you where we're going to billet you.' With long, hasty steps he crossed the hall, his tall figure casting gaunt shadows on the bare and lofty wall. "'We're a trifle unsophisticated here,' he went on with a loud, hard laugh, "'but at least we'll give you enough to eat and a bed to lie on. "'After all, a decent dinner and a warm welcome "'are the bone and sinew of hospitality the world over.' "'unless they include a drop of something to put life into a man.' "'He paused, turning round upon his guest. "'By Jupiter, that reminds me. "'Have a small drink before we go another step, "'just to take the cold out of you.' "'Milbank, who was close behind him, glanced up. "'He saw his host's face more clearly than he'd seen it in the hall. "'His answer when it came was hurried and a little confused. "'No, no, Dennis, no,' he said. "'Nothing, nothing, I assure you.' "'Ashlyn laughed again.' "'Still the same, Stickler?' he said. "'How virtues cling to a man!' He turned and began to mount the stairs. Then, reaching the first floor on the white corridor, he paused. "'Here's your habitation,' he said. "'Burke will bring up your belongings and get you whatever you want. "'We dine in a quarter of an hour.' He nodded, and was turning away when a fresh thought struck him. "'You may as well take this candle,' he said. "'We haven't arrived at the civilisation of gas. "'You might stumble over something looking for the matches.' This is practically a bachelor's establishment, you know, without any bachelor comforts. Once more he laughed, and thrusting the candle into his guest's hand, hurried away across the landing. In silence Milbank took the candle, and holding it uncertainly waited until his host had disappeared. Then slowly he turned and entered the large, bare bedroom. For a moment he hesitated, his eyes wandering from the faded window hangings to the stiff, old-fashioned furniture. Finally, laying aside the candlestick, he sat down upon the side of the forbidding-looking four-post bedstead. What motive prompted him to the action he could scarcely have divined? He was strangely moved by the scene just gone through, stirred in a manner he could never have anticipated. For a moment the precise, matter-of-fact archaeologist was submerged, and the man, dry, narrow, pedantic perhaps, but nevertheless capable of human sentiments, was uppermost. The sight of Ashton, the sound of his voice, and the touch of his hand, had possessed an alchemy all their own. The past, that years of separation had dimmed and tarnished, had gleamed out from the shadows and taken shape before his eyes. The influence, the fascination that Ashton had once exercised, had touched him again, at the first contact of personalities. But it was an altered fascination. The alloy of doubt and apprehension had tainted the old feeling. The question he had been prompted to ask Burke had answered itself at the first glimpse of his host's face. Indisputably, unmistakably, Ashlin had changed. And in what lay that change? That was the question he put to himself as he sat on the bed, unconsciously noting the long, wavering flicker of the candle flame against the faded wallpaper. He had aged, but the change did not lie with age alone. Something more relentless and more corroding than time had drawn the worn, discontented lines about the mouth, kindled the unnatural, restless glitter in the eyes, and changed the note of the voice from spontaneous vitality to recklessness. The change lay deeper. It lay in the heart and the soul of the man himself. With a sensation of doubt, of puzzled doubt and inexplicable disappointment, he rose, crossed the room, and, drawing the curtains over the windows, shut out the dark, damp night. End of chapter 2